welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, your host, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master. Thanks for joining me for another valuable discussion to help you make that move to become a product master. And I also provide training on my website to help you make that move into product mastery. Find out more about that at the same place where you'll find the show notes for this episode. And that's the everydayinnovator.com slash 135. I love hearing how companies are creating successful products that provide customers real value, which happens to be the topic for this episode. Gordon Stannis is the Director of Design and Strategy at TwistThink, and he shares their approach to developing innovative solutions for their Fortune 500 clients. Gordon started his career as an industrial designer and then moved into product development and management roles. We discuss the process that Gordon uses for creating innovative products, and he shares the product journey of a tool for competitive swim coaches as an example of that process. I hope you enjoy the interview. Gordon, thanks so much for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast. Hey, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks. I'm interested to hear more about your company and the kinds of products that you guys build. I saw a few uh, that are really intriguing. So tell us about TwistThink and the kind of products that you do create. Um, we work in a ridiculously broad range of markets from industrial to healthcare to uh, workplace. Uh, I started my career in transportation, so we do uh, automotive interiors and also products for the home, residential. So the, the, the gamut is quite broad. Absolutely. So some consumer goods space, industrial equipment, healthcare, I assume, is in, in the consumer medical delivery, uh, medical devices. Exactly. And, and uh, we don't, when we started the firm uh, 15 or 16 years ago, we were literally designing products. And if we got a project from a client in any of those spaces, their expectation was that they would tell us what they wanted and we would design a product to suit those needs. Well, today, we, uh, we don't design just products. We design uh, user experiences, mm-hmm. services, and products. And, and when there is a physical, tangible product, Oftentimes, there are lots of different expressions of it in the form of a uh, mobile device app or a desktop app or a web portal. Everything has so many more dimensions than it did in just just a decade ago. That's an interesting shift in a relatively short time. And there has been this move from thinking about tangible products, not as just tangible products, but really as the service they provide the customer. Right? You're buying the tangible product to actually do something for you. More, more thoughts along marketing and product management in terms of, well, we're in the service business, really, not, not just the tangible product business. Exactly, exactly. Uh, we have this inside joke that uh, five years ago we started referring to our outputs as blinking widgets. <laughs> and we became the masters of creating really sophisticated uh, blinking widgets that you know provided a user experience and so forth. And we began to realize that we actually didn't need to make as many of those anymore. The problems were getting more sophisticated and the solutions to the problems weren't always these uh, digital blinking widgets. They were interfaces or they were figuring out ways to eliminate the problem, mm-hmm. not just solve the problem with another product, but eliminate the problem entirely. That is a valid solution. Absolutely. 
So you must be experts in the innovation process then, having worked in all these, you know, a variety of domains, uh, as opposed to an expert in a you know, neural domain. So tell us about this process you use. How, how do you approach designing these uh, very diverse products? It depends on the market and it depends on the client. So, for instance, um, if we're working in the automotive industry, um, they're not really up to speed on acronyms like uh, design thinking and HCD and human-centered design and front-end innovation. Frankly, they do it out of reflex. They do it the right way. They just haven't codified it with uh, with a process per se. So one of the first things we have to do when we're – and this just happened to me last week. Hmm. And these are professionals who were trained at the finest schools. They're veteran uh, product designers, and they literally didn't know what HCD stood for. Um, and, I, and I don't even hold it against them because they're so focused on their business and they're so great at what they do. They don't need to go out and promote the acronym du jour. They're just doing fantastic work internally. So the first thing we do is we calibrate with our, our audience and try to understand them and their language, and we try to morph to their language. We're the masters of, uh, or like chameleons that can sort of come alongside any client in any market, start to understand them, start to create a common language with them, and help lead them to the place that they've described that they, they want to go. We use an analogy, and we have pictures in our office of bridges that are under construction. So I'm looking at one right now, which is the Golden Gate Bridge half-constructed. And it's because we feel like that's what we do for a living. We help people build bridges from point A to point B. From where they are to where they want to go. Right. Now, with all, with all that said, we have at nauseum beautiful diagrams of elaborate processes and methods mm-hmm. and tools. And there are uh, clients that really benefit from, they, they don't feel comfortable until they hold that blanket in their hand and they see that, oh, yes, good, this is totally codified. And what we try to make very clear is this is not a paint-by-numbers approach either. It's not that simple. Mm -hmm. Even though there are codified processes and toll gates and steps and so forth, that's not an excuse for not thinking. It's not an excuse for not taking action and, uh, and assuming some risk and so forth. Innovation inherently involves risk. What we try to do is fail a lot at the front end so that there's no failure at the back end. That's a fundamental shift. We actually embrace uh, challenge, and we plan to fail a ton on the front end of a project so that we don't fail on the back end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, uh, so there's so many different tangents I could take off on what we just said. Real quick thought on that fail fast sort of mentality. The you know The fail fast phrase gets thrown around a lot and it's either thought in a very positive way or very negative way. The point here Mm -hmm. is, at least from my perspective, is learning fast, regardless of how you feel about that whole fail fast phrase. It's learning fast. Right. And like you said, it's repositioning. It's repositioning the, what that word means. Fail doesn't mean, uh, fail equals learn, right? Fail. If you fail at something in your organization, you now have a new trade secret. You have uh, tribal knowledge that your competitor might not have. And that has tremendous value. Uh, if you put it out in the open within your organization, if you hide it in the closet because you're scared mm-hmm. and you're worried about getting whacked and your job being eliminated, well, then there's tremendous damage in that failure. But uh, are you familiar with an com- organization called Failure Lab? I'm not. That promotes the dissemination of failure? Failure Lab. It's Tell a, us about it. 
they uh, they actually hold events in which they have uh, successful people who are currently successful. <clears throat> they get up on stage and they talk about some of their epic failures and what they learned from those failures and how that allowed them to become successful. So it does a great job of jujitsuing failure and translating that negative energy into a positive momentum. Right. It's a really good point. As an aside, I had interviewed one of the innovation directors at uh, Chick-fil-A, a restaurant I frequented a lot. I was telling you earlier as we were <laughs> chatting when we, we did this epic RV trip around the U.S. for a, a year. We, we went to a lot of Chick-fil-A's. And I got interested in them. Uh, they're always good experiences. One of the things they found in their culture was this resistance to failing, that the, the employees felt a sense in the culture that they couldn't make mistakes. And they corrected this by having the senior executives have town hall type meetings where they shared their experiences of, of things that they made bad decisions, right? And they learned from those decisions. And that was the point that was, you know, the, the, the learning was the point. And when the employees saw the executives sharing their stories of failures in their careers, yeah. that really helped to change the culture that said, oh, this is, this is how you learn. It's really, really smart when organizations reposition the meaning of that word mm -hmm. into into learning. And I'm I'm thinking of one or organization in particular that they're they they use a very sophisticated screening process for all new employees. It's very difficult to become a full time employee there because of the process that they use, and they end up hiring a certain type of individual. And that type of individual though super high IQ and oftentimes pretty high EQ, uh, if there was the term FQ, like failure quotient, <laughs> or willingness to embrace ambiguity and willingness to endure rapid-fire, small, upfront failure, they all get an F hmm. in, in that. And, and they've had to work really hard on that culture. If you were to use the term fail fast within that organization five years ago, uh, it would not have the desired result. Hmm. It would be met with, we don't talk about failure because we don't fail. Right. And, and uh, we've watched them grow and, and mature as an organization to, I'm not saying they're done and they're not at the promised land yet, but they have openly discussed through workshops that we've led. They've openly discussed the fact that, uh, A, failure is inevitable and it is a great source of learning and it is at odds with human pride because proud people don't like to fail. So if we can get over our pride, maybe put that on hold a little bit and recognize that it's the only way to innovate and learn and grow is to go through some painful failure experience. If we can cross those couples of bridges, um, individuals are going to be stronger and teams are going to be stronger. And they're, they're on that journey. It's exciting to see growth there. Yeah, that, that would be an exciting journey for you to be a part of to help navigate with them and just see what takes effect. And fundamentally, innovation means we're doing something new we haven't done before. Clearly, if we knew what we were doing, it, there wouldn't be any issues here, right? But if we're doing something new, <laughs> that means that we have some things to learn to figure out how to get to the new, the new thing that we want, the new state. And that's why learning is so important. Exactly. And so in your process... Well, and it's actually... It's actually one of the things that has me very concerned about the younger generation. I've been on a school board for nearly a decade, and I have mm. kids that are currently in high school, and I've noticed that kids are they become masters at content uh, curation, but mm -hmm. not necessarily masters of content creation, and that almost builds up this fear to create because they haven't been exercising it 
that much. If they take an art class here and there in a public school, then they're exercising it. But um, I mean, even in, in, in music, I have a daughter who's first chair in trumpet and she's never huh. created anything new. She's never created new music, mm-hmm. but she's fantastic at regurgitating somebody else's music. And you play that principle across all the subjects and you don't inject some design thinking curriculum or some project-based learning curriculum right. into that environment, we're going to have a bunch of people that are great at following instructions and can't think freely for themselves and innovate. And a lot of it has to do with fear. They haven't, they haven't, had, they haven't failed a lot in school, therefore they're terrified of it. Right. It's an excellent point and could be a whole nother topic of discussion for sure. Yeah. But this opportunity to apply things, design thinking fits at organizational level. It's not just at the product level. And we can use design thinking to change the culture of an organization, including to change how we approach education and, and educational systems. So I just had a, a, a leader at a local university here just before this call, and that is the subject of our conversation. He's doing it in the university level for the same reasons. Excellent. He's, he's, created, he's created a design thinking curriculum within a university, and it's, uh, it's not for credit. And, and, he, and he, uh, he had twice as many students sign up for it as he anticipated. I'm always glad to hear about those kinds of programs going on, and there's more and more, which is good. Now, for your process, so it's well, you know, step-by-step codified. We also tell customers it's not a paint-by-numbers solution because that means we're probably not really innovating because uh, each of these projects is different and new. Can you take us through the big blocks, the kind of the big steps in your process Customer comes to you, says, we, we need this new widget, whatever it is. We have this problem to solve. What, what are the activities that you guys help them through? Sure. And, and what's funny is that initial engagement has changed so drastically over the past 15 years. 15 years ago, we typically received a quarter-inch thick document called an MRD, which stands right. for Market Requirement Document. And it was the project leader's best best attempt to put thoughts into words so that they could be translated to a broader audience and explain what their goal was. Mm -hmm. So one of those thick documents would land on my desk and it was my job to create a project plan to solve that problem and deliver that result. Um, I haven't seen one of those in 12 years. (laughs) That the the landscape has changed so much. Nobody has time for that. Right. And, And frankly, few people have the expertise to create an MRD. So uh, the actual antithesis of it has, has transpired where we have really smart, really motivated people and they will come to us and say, um, we know we need to innovate. Um, we're really great at taking hills. Uh, we're, we're just not sure which one to take right now. Uh, we have some hunches. Can you work with us to help us clarify which hill we should take? Think of what a difference that is from 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're great at taking hills. We just don't know which one. So our initial engagement is helping them figure out, well, what do you, you know, we, we, we end up in like therapy sessions, like professional uh, innovation counseling to discern where they really want to go and why they want to go there. And then we can, you know, we can perform more uh, pragmatic uh, processes to, to get them there. Okay. So let's say we figure that out, that we, I'll put it in terms of a hill. We know there's a new market that we want to pursue. 
We have some technology strengths that would be applicable to that new market. What do we do next? Okay, so so uh, I'll, now I'll shift to a tangible example. So okay. during those therapy sessions that I had just talked about, eventually someone says a magic sentence, and we never know when it's going to pop up, but we're listening with a keen, tuned ear for it. And someone will say, you know, what we really want is uh, uh, we want to use design technology and strategy to allow a coach to be a better coach and to allow an athlete to be a better coach self-coach. And we say, hold on, hold on. That was it. You you just created the problem statement like spontaneously. And we put it up on the marker board and we tune it a little bit and it becomes our North Star. And then we begin to write a plan to solve that sentence. And that was that example that I just, I just gave you was, was quite literal. An entire $2 million, 18 month program was launched on the back of that sentence. And it was commercialized very successfully, and the product was used by uh, 13 U.S. Olympic swimming uh, champions in the London Games. So that did something good. So let's, <laughs> if we can, let's pursue that example further. Then, so you had the this initial meet. Well, you know, price series of meetings, but at some point during the discussions with the client, you you observed this magic sense and share that really kind of wrapped up what they were wanting to accomplish, and uh, you characterized yep. it as your north star sentence gave direction. So, what happened next then with them? Well, next we had to understand their market. Because, uh, I mean, I was a swimmer in high school and several of the guys on our team were too. But uh, the first thing we need to do is uh, develop a, a great depth of empathy for the stakeholders who would actually use a product and a service and an experience like that. So the very first thing we do is we start hanging out at pools and we start talking to swimmers uh, of a broad age range. And we start talking to coaches and we are, uh, you know, the five whys, you know, what, what information, uh, by the way, coaches, swim coaches hate technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, their technology is a whistle, a clipboard, a stopwatch, and they want to be focused on an athlete. So we don't walk up and say, hey, what cool technology would help you do your job better? They'll laugh at us and dismiss us. Right. But if we come at it from their perspective and show empathy for them as a as a really important stakeholder and end user and, and just say, what, what kind of uh, data do you collect? What do you wish you could collect? What do you wish you could have? Why do you wish you could have that? What, and we just keep doing the five whys. They're very happy to explain over a period of, uh, you know, several different conversations, we get deeper and deeper. They're very willing to explain what their ultimate ambitions and even share their dream state mm-hmm. with us. So, so we did that with a, a wide range of, of, uh, of uh, high-end swim coaches. And we, had a, we thought we had a pretty good picture of um, what would be valuable. So we did something really fun and sneaky on that particular project. Mm-hmm. We actually fast forward and we did what we call pre-design, and we find this to be really helpful. It's not to be confused with an actual design phase, but we do this quick, uh, more intuitive design phase, and we created these sensors, uh, and we built prototypes of them that would live on the wrists and ankles of swimmers, and then we created a really slick video that of a swimmer going back and forth through a pool and we overlaid it with all of these cool heads up displays of data that were churning and 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 uh you know 
showing what was happening on the video itself. And we took that to, there just happened to be a swim coach show in Florida uh, a month or two after our initial engagement. We said, we want to use that swim coach show as a means of teasing out great information from those stakeholders. So we basically yeah. faked a company. We created a logo. We bought, we bought a booth and we showed this video on a monitor and we had these weighted prototypes uh, that people could pick up and imagine their athletes wearing. And then we showed the swimmer on the screen going back and forth and all of this data was churning. And we showed that there were 10 different metrics that we could pull off of a swimmer. And we asked people, hundreds of people, which of those 10 are the most intriguing to you? Hmm. And over a three-day period of time at that show, we managed to get forced ranking of those 10 capabilities so that we could run home and focus our efforts on figuring out how to crack those three top nuts of those 10 because we had a really good data set and the people didn't even, it wasn't a, it wasn't a focus group and it wasn't some goofy survey and it was like a rich, they believed that this thing was actually working mm-hmm. and they believed that they could buy it next year and they believed that we could deliver all 10 metrics. All they did was tell us which ones they craved most and first. That made our development process so much smoother. It was still a challenge. It still took 18 months to fully develop the system, but we we launched the right system. Well, this was data that you needed for the actual, the, the real product design to know the, the ranked attributes of the system, right? What, what's most important to the users in terms of the data you're providing them. And when we look at any product, we, we need to have that ranked list of priorities, right? The, the ranked list of things that are most, that create the most value for the customer, and that's what we drive our design around. And that is such a one innovative solution itself. Some people might, might call that a very elaborate smoke test. I don't know what you guys call it internally, right? <laughs> but a, a smoke test is this notion of we're going to pretend we have the product yeah. and we're going to pretend to make it available to customers and we're going to get feedback from them on what yep. they would actually, what they think about this idea, right? And you crafted it in a way that gave you specifics on those attributes, the 10 metrics you could could collect and what they really needed. Very, very yep. clever. I, uh, I I borrowed that from that from the uh, Italian furniture design playbook when I was in college. There were these lighting companies that had these fantastic desk lamps that were really sculptural, and they always came from Italy, and they mm-hmm. were in these really high end uh, design magazines. And if you look closely at the photographs, they were always beautiful studio photographs. If you look really closely at the photos, you could see sanding marks on the prototypes, which indicated that they were prototypes, they were not production parts. And my, and I pointed that out to a professor once, and he said, yeah, those Italians, what, they're, they're masters of testing interest. So they make a prototype, they take a pretty picture, they put it in the cover of a magazine, they send it to America, they see how many people want to place an order, and if enough people want to place an order, it's early Kickstarter, if you think about right. it. Uh, if enough people are interested, then they manufacture it. If not, they don't. Yeah, and it's a really smart approach. You, you know what your audience wants before you actually build the product. Yeah, and if you, you know, anybody who knows what's really happening behind the scenes when they watch it, I mean, we've made Kickstarter videos. Um, you have an idea for a product and an experience, and you make it really vivid with um, a video 
And you can control the lighting, you control the sound, you control the background music, you set the tempo, and it creates an impression that this thing is sitting on a loading dock and somebody's holding uh, a, a sticker. They're ready to write your address on it and send it to you like overnight. Mm-hmm. It creates that impression when, in fact, that thing is only half developed. Okay. I, I'm enamored with the, with the, the detail you added to this approach. So, okay, I just want to <laughs> kind of set where we are. So we had the customer meeting. We got this magic sentence that kind of characterized where we're headed, the North Star. You used empathy to really understand the customer, understand the market, the stakeholders involved, what they needed, what they were looking for to accomplish. And you put this together with a, you know, a, a trade show activity where you could actually get really the important concept, sorry, the important information that you needed from your customers on what they valued most. And so you got that information. If this was a kind of a, a typical design thinking approach, you know, somewhere around here, we would be ideating with the customer and developing some prototypes of what solutions might look like, right? Yeah, yeah. But let's continue on with the, the swimmer example. So now you had a really clear prototype concept. What happened next? Uh, we had some really challenging technical hurdles to uh, to solve. Uh, one of which, you know, if you want a coach to be a better coach and you want a, a swimmer to be a better self coach, you need certain kinds of data uh, without pushing any buttons, and it can't be. It has to be totally unintrusive. So um, we had to design the algorithms that would be able to discern between, because in swimming, there's four strokes, right? There's breast, free, back, and butter. And uh, we need to be able to discern when you're doing which of those four strokes Mm. so that after that, we can discern how you're doing at those four strokes, right? It took one guy a whole year in our firm to, to write the algorithms to discern between a fifth percentile female and a 95th percentile male, a young person, an old person, a thin person, a less thin person, and, and always be accurate with uh, which of the four strokes that they were doing. So that was a huge technical hurdle. We had to figure it out. We figured it out. The next one was the fact that you know, coaching people when they're underwater using radios is really challenging because radio waves don't go through water. Mm-hmm. So what we ended up doing, ended up succeeding at doing, was creating a, 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 an ecosystem, a pool environment, a network that allowed 100 people to swim at the exact same time and all of their data was chirping into a local area network and it was being aggregated on site onto the tablet of a coach. And he could look down or he or she could look down at a tablet and discern the performance of a hundred athletes with very simple, easily digested information. Uh, that was a Herculean effort to get that's 500 radio enabled sensors chirping data when a limb plunges out of the water and is in the air for a quarter of a second, it has to chirp its data into the ether and be pulled together in multi-sensor fusion, which is a fancy sounding term for just aggregating the data mm-hmm. and displaying it live to this coach. So uh, I think a word picture would help us with this a little bit. So you said there's 500 radio sensors. Does that mean there's five sensors somehow connected to each swimmer? Perfect. Each there's a one ounce sensor on each wrist and mm-hmm. each ankle, and one goes under the swim cap. Okay. And when people swim with those, they can't tell that they're wearing them. They're so light they don't even know they're wearing them, and they're wearing them during a two hour long practice session. And they recharge them 
magnetically, there's a recharging station after every single workout. And if you were to go to the University of Michigan uh, 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 swim platform area, you'd see hundreds of these things on a wall Wow! because their athletes are using them to train. Okay, so this is some pretty high-tech uh, going on here to be able to record the data that you need as a swimmer is moving through the water and then that very few milliseconds when the sensor is out of the water to burst that data to the receiver and then keep track of all this in your algorithms. Well, those were the really challenging uh, technical nuts that we had to crack, and we have an amazing team of uh, cross-functional electronics engineers that do stuff like that, but really the take if you had all that data and you displayed it inappropriately to a coach they wouldn't care because they don't want to take the time to sift through spreadsheets and and so forth so the another really difficult challenge was figuring out what do the coaches care about and we did that at that earlier trade show but really how to serve that up in an instantaneously digestible way that creates pull Mm-hmm. So the first time a coach sees that initial dashboard, we call it the team roster, it was essential that we asked all the right questions and we ideated appropriately and we selected the right method to deliver that data so that the, the, we watch the faces of the coach. If they see that dashboard, which we call the roster, and they smile reflexively at seeing it, we know we've nailed it. The smile is the, uh, it's the innovation tachometer. When we see mm-hmm. the client look at that dashboard and we and they're smiling, it means they're literally getting something they craved for the first time. It's the smile test. <laughs> I like it that. is. It's fun. It's fundamental. So leading up to the smile, we, we you had this empathy round to really un- uncover the problem well and uncover the key data that was needed. So did you go through ideation stages with coaches to kind of evolve prototypes for this roster? Yeah, and you know what's so humbling and frankly embarrassing is how much time it takes. You've heard that old quote, that Mark Twain quote, sorry, I, I didn't have time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long one. Right. It takes so much time and sorting to create something simple. Yeah, something elegant that you can just grasp. Yep. Yes. The, and the roster, the way we design the roster, you would look at it. I mean, the average person would look at that, and they would think that that was the first idea. Like, that's so simple. You must have put a whole 10 minutes of thought into that. And to realize that, no, it actually took uh, a year <laughs> to figure that out. It's frankly, in hindsight, it's embarrassing. But we haven't figured out a way to do it faster. To get to the beauty and simple elegance of an obvious mm-hmm. solution, it takes an excruciating amount of work. And you hear guys like Johnny Ives and Apple commercials talk about that thing over and over and over. And we're kind of, you know, as a society, we've grown tired of hearing it, but it's a truism. Yeah. Uh, the capability to, in this case, do the, the data visualization in a way that, as you said, put the smile on the face of the consumer. Yeah. They, they just get it. They understand, oh, this is the data I need and the way I need to see it. I just gave a presentation in, uh, at a, at a conference out west a couple of months ago, and I showed all these pictures of digital dashboards that live in our lives. And a lot of them are from Hollywood. So you've got, like, if anybody just watched the recent Iron Man movie, looking into the helmet of mm-hmm. uh, of, of, of Iron Man and seeing all of these dashboards and all of this data that's overlaid onto what he's actually seeing through his visor, it is so cool looking. 
it is so interesting and it and it looks really attractive and and we see amazing heads up displays on show cars in Detroit and, and all this kind of stuff and it's it's hypnotically beautiful like blinking lights it's like a christmas scene and you know a million lights on your house and stuff like that but in reality nobody wants to actually live like that right no one benefits from that that would be maddening to have tons of random data always living in this virtual space between you and, and reality. So the real hard work is figuring out what's essential exactly. and, and getting rid, getting rid of all the nonsense that doesn't deserve to exist so that the stuff that does deserve to exist gets the airplay it needs. And what is essential at any given point in time? Mm-hmm. So Iron Man doesn't need to have all that stuff up really in his heads up displays at any moment there's some things that are much more important than other things at some point in time mm-hmm. yep good good analogies in developing this this product the the swim uh, coaching age so we had the empathy understand the market work through a lot of the tech issues the you know the feasibility of getting this done the actual technical architecture and the the, the data representation of the information what was involved then in actually getting this launch are we at the point where we have a product now or ready to launch it to the market? David Kelly has a very famous quote, and I heard this at least 20 years ago, and I think about it at least once a month. And and maybe the version I remember is a little bit embellished above and beyond what actually happened, but apparently rumor has it he was at a lecture and he got up to the podium and said, I'm going to give you the uh, three-stage process that ensures success on any innovation project, and I'm just going to spell it out for you, and so get your pencil and paper handy, and here we go. (laughs) And he said, prototype, prototype, prototype. And then that was the end of the speech. (laughs) Kind of like uh, Winston Churchill, never give up, never give up, never give up, right? That's it. And the point he was trying to make, and if I could just like add to what I know he meant by that, it was um, create prototype, test, uh, and then you learn, you do your testing, you learn, you analyze what worked and what didn't work, Mm -hmm. and then you create prototype test again, and then you create prototype test again. And And I've highly simplified it into three stages of prototypes, but the funny thing is that magic number works remarkably well. Um, I've, I've written project plans for people who are up front. I, I have five or six waves of that simplistic process laid out. And people say, really? Do we really need to do that six times? I mean, it's so expensive and it takes so much time. Can't we do three? And I, I look at them and I say, well, in the history of doing this job, I've never had anybody say we, hit, we did one too many no one's ever said that, ever. Mm-hmm. Um, I have heard people often say, golly, I wish we had budgeted for one more round of uh, create prototype test. I wish we just had one more round. I've heard right. that a lot. I said, so if we're able to step up to the plate and the stars align and we hit a grand slam home run and it only takes three, that's fantastic. I'm not right. going to charge you for six. But don't walk up to that plate planning on that. That would be... You will do the death march back to your boss to ask for more budget, and you won't get promoted, and we won't look good. <laughs> yeah, and it's a really good point because the trying to skimp in those early, you know, we, we call this the front end of innovation, these early stages where we're really formulating what the product's going to be. Skimping there where, when we know we're going to spend so much more money in actual product development and launching and 
potentially reputation salvaging if we don't do a good job. Yeah. This is not the place to skimp. This is the place to say, we learned a lot on that fifth fifth cycle through. I wonder what we can learn on the sixth one because it feels like we're getting close, but we're not there yet, right? Yeah, and it and it takes a lot of, and it takes a lot of discipline to not overthink, over design and over engineer something. I mean, that that wastes time and money too. Right. So there is this sweet spot where professionals who do this day in, day out, they know when it's the right time to launch or or just when I when I use the word test. I mean, there's lots of ways you can test. You can test with five people internally. Mm-hmm. You can test with five externally. You can test with 50 externally. Uh, and every time you raise that number, um, you decrease your risk, right? Mm-hmm. There was, there, here, here's, a, here's a story that... Uh, I really regret allowing to occur. Um, we worked with a client on the East Coast, and they had done uh, product testing uh, for years and years. They had, uh, in fact, they had hired IDO to do the project just before us, and they did. They spent a lot of money on product testing, and they didn't see the value in it. And I don't know why, but they didn't see the value in it. So when we designed this pretty sophisticated product and system for them, we were ready to go to alpha test. And they said they didn't want to spend the money on it, and and we were just blown away. We we just said, you well, you have we have to. It's the only way to validate. These are all theories. These are hypotheses that we need to test before we're confident telling you to go forward with this. Right. And they said we love these ideas. You have us totally convinced. Uh, we're just ready to go to market with them. And we were very very nervous because there were. They were very innovative, new ideas, and and we knew we were going to learn something in that test phase. Well, long story short, they forbid us to spend any of their money doing uh, product testing. Hmm. And against our better instincts and their judgment, um, we they tooled, they built you know sixteen cavity tools in China, and they manufactured this thing. And I bumped into them at a trade show a year later, and they're selling it. And that leader confessed to me one-on-one kind of off to the side of their showroom that they're experiencing some problems with the user interface that we had designed for them. And they, and he was wishing that they had run the alpha testing yep. and now he's stuck with 16 cavity tools and, and they're selling that product, which is, it worked, but it's a, it's a shell of what it could have been. Right. And uh, he gave me, I, I just, I thanked him. I said, you just gave me the ammo which will prevent this from ever happening again. I will <laughs> now never you have allow the story. client. I will walk away from the project before I allow them to waste money and my time and their time. That's a great story. And the importance of recognizing no matter how much we actually think we know our customer, we're still not our customer uh-huh. and we're not in their environment. Oh, it's so arrogant to even presume that you have that information. And, you know, we started our conversation talking about uh, fear of failure. It it kind of circles back to that. And there's so many other aspects of this that we could certainly explore. But I appreciate you sharing your process there. It's essentially a design thinking sort of process of uh, understanding the big why, that North Star statement, um, understanding the market and empathy for the market, and then working through, right? You're you're doing that loop of creating and prototyping and testing. And it is resulting in amazing products that you guys create for customers, which, um, which is uh, adding value to people's lives, which is very important. I do always like to ask for a quote. And uh, so uh, if you have an innovation quote that you enjoy, could you share that with us and tell us why you chose that one? 
I'm going to, I have two and I'm going to butcher both of them, but I can, I can convey their intent. One is, uh, from the famous French aviator, uh, uh, Antoine de Saint-Saperie. And it uh, goes something like this. If you want to build a ship, don't, uh, send men to collect wood and divide up tasks. Rather, teach those men to long for the endless immensity of the sea. What does this one mean to you? Why do you like this one? It it, it creates an appetite, create an appetite within people uh, where they crave uh, uh, an excellent journey. So as a, as a leader in a design firm, you know, I'm not going to walk over to somebody's desk and drop down a, piece of paper and say, yeah, execute this. Right. <laughs> it's more about let's dream together about how amazing this could be and why it deserves to exist and how we're going to help people and change people's lives. And we all get actually legitimately excited about the opportunity to do that mm-hmm. and not just execute a design brief and get paid. I love this quote in part because it's one I don't know, and I know lots of innovation quotes, and uh, th- I haven't come across this one yet. And I'm going to have an opportunity uh-huh. to use this. I'm I'm coaching a one of the Lego robotic leads, so a, a group of probably like ten to twelve year old um, boys in this case. Uh, we'll be starting up here soon, preparing for this year's uh, robot competition that comes in later in the year. And I want to inspire them to have this longing for longing for this interest in robotics and engineering as opposed to the specific tasks of what need to get accomplished. So thanks for sharing that with me. You're welcome. Tasks can overwhelm people. And if they don't have a vision of the better place, they may not be willing to right. do the tasks. Right. And to me, that quote also is a mirror image of begin with the end in mind. Yep. Where you're going. Because once you build a ship, yeah, once you build a ship, what are you going to do? You're going to go on a journey. Well, if you start with the journey, the ship kind of built, it may build itself. Right. And you may even build a better ship, better suited to that journey. Yeah, exactly. Knowing where you're going to be. Excellent. And you said there was another quote you also had interest in. Yeah, there's a, uh, Maya Angelou is just chock full of amazing uh, outputs. And uh, one of them was something to the effect of, um, I may not remember um, what, what you did or said, but I will remember how you made me feel. Right. And that pays homage to the emotional dimension of uh, products and services and experiences. Right. Absolutely. Um, the, the utility of a product, it, it's hard work designing something that performs the utility that is required. I'm not trying to say that that's easy, uh, but I, what I am trying to say is that it needs to be in 50-50 balance with desirability, and 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 oftentimes that means how did how did the person um, how did what feeling did it create in the mm-hmm. person? If it's just pure utility, it's you're leaving half of the opportunity on the table. Absolutely, you know some products were are as you said very utilitarian. When we for those that remember the first iPod uh, when it became available. You know, I, I had a few MP3 players lying around my house, but when the iPod mm-hmm. came out, you know, th- there was an aesthetic quality to that that connected much more at an emotional level. Like, wow, that is cool. And, and there was a desire to just get it in your hand and see what it felt like. One point of view that we have as a firm is uh, kind of visualize a Harvey Dent-like Batman-ish uh, two-sided coin 
and this one has desirability on one side and usability on the other side. <clears throat> and you and any product or service or experience essentially needs both sides of that coin. You can visualize it as a yin-yang. You can visualize a two-sided coin. It doesn't matter. But uh, we've had clients come to us in the past and they say, hey, we need your help solving this usability problem. And we start down the path and we figure out how to solve their usability problem and we think the job is done. And, and then we have an aha moment and we realize that that was never the fundamental problem. Mm, right. Uh, if they were to have gone to market with that solution alone, they would never sell one. No one in the universe would ever know that the usability problem got solved because the desirability problem eclipsed the usability problem. Uh, that particular project happened 10 years ago, and it cemented our point of view on this two-sided coin and how essential it is. Uh, to put equal weight on, on, on both sides of the coin or both sides of the yin-yang. So mm -hmm. we had, you had just mentioned the comment about your uh, iPod and how it overnight obsoleted all of these perfectly utilitarian MP3 players. And I went through the exact same experience. I think millions of people did. I had a Rio player that was yep. pretty handy, and it, and it did Bright the job, yellow. right? Okay. And, it's the, it, and it's, it's the same issue that I'm having with all of my watches right mm. now. Um, I was salivating at the prospect of Apple coming out with a watch. I, I used to design uh, personal phones for Nokia. I was doing that okay. over 20 years ago. And that was the early, those were the early days of uh, personal phones. And I was already feeling really awkward about having my phone on vibrate ring while I was in a meeting. And I had to do this awkward, socially awkward dance where I would turn the phone over and look at the number of the person who's calling me and discern whether I was going to exit the room to take the call or not. And there was no way to be discreet about that. And I was, I was fantasizing about a watch mm. that would silently ring and I could just sort of just gently turn my wrist and see who's calling me and decide if I could take that call or not. It took over 20 years for the world to output that craving and that product the apple watch has obsoleted not just because of that one feature but because of the hundreds of features that are baked into it and it's an endless feature stream uh -huh. it's obsoleted all other watches i don't like going backwards um and i would not i would certainly not want to be a watch designer right now and i get the fashion statement behind watches and the the value of doing a poser shot with a $5,000 Rolex, and I get all that. But at the end of the day, it's, it's not even a fair fight. You can't compete with the capability of an Apple Watch. They created usability and desirability, and they beautifully blended the two, and it's an amazing product. And from my perspective, for what it can do, I think they're giving them away. It's a good example of those two sides of your coin. It, it hits on the desirability and usability aspects. And for you and many people, it's exceptionally compelling. Yeah, and, the, and, and they were really shrewd and smart on the desirability front to realize that people like expressive timepieces. So mm -hmm. they, they de-emphasize the timepiece. Well, two things. One is you can have any watch face you want. Right. Right. It's just a little soft square and you can put any picture of your kids or anything you can imagine can be that watch face and any useful data that you want served up at a, the rotation of a wrist, you can have sort of, you can customize it almost endlessly. But the bands themselves, I mean, I, 
I literally use the exact same watch all day at the gym, uh, in the lake, at the pool. The only thing I won't do is scuba dive with it because it, it can only handle an atmosphere or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, but then I'll dress it up with a different band and, and use cufflinks. It's the same product. Yep. It just goes and goes and goes. It's, it's a, it, they were really, really shrewd with their band strategy. Very versatile. Right, and contains a lot of emotional impact too. Thanks for sharing the the quotes and the background there too, and the point of view of your firm. These important dimensions of desirability and usability that we need to see in, in each product that we design. Mm. So this has been an excellent discussion. I do want to have an opportunity to just wrap up on again with TwistThink. There's probably people who have heard this process and some of the things you do. Tell us a little bit again about getting in touch with your company and just the kinds of products you guys get involved with. Sure. So I can be reached at uh, Gordon at twistthink.com. So Gordon spelled G-O-R-D-O-N. And at twistthink, uh, there's only one T in the middle of twistthink.com. So if anybody uh, sees a synergy and they're interested in having us uh, uh, take a look at uh, a, a project, um, I'd, I'd welcome the call. What we do not do is we uh, don't really accept calls from individual inventors. That's not what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we work with Fortune 100s down to Fortune 3 or 400s. That's kind of our sweet spot. Okay. Um, what we do is it's capital intensive, uh, and um, so that's that's kind of a screener right there. Sure. Yeah. So, um, but but um, we're we're always uh, on the lookout for the small nine percent of uh, corporate and private companies uh, or public and private companies, 9% of them um, by statistics um, have an ongoing innovation process. They, they in, a, in a sustainable fashion, year in, year out, recognize that innovation is at the heart of their lifeblood and, and they know that if they insert a dollar into that slot that they'll get a $2.11 return uh, statistically, that's a design value index number. Um, those are the kind of clients we're looking for, the ones that know, that invest wisely and selfishly uh, uh, in, in innovation for the purpose of growth and sustainability of their company. We're on the lookout for them. Um, they're not easy to find. <laughs> they're in the single digits of all public and private companies. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, we have a couple dozen in our roster and we're, we're really proud to be uh, affiliated with them and, and it's, we're humbled and honored, um, but we're always willing to, uh, to look at another one. Excellent. So if you're in that Fortune 500 or, or larger size company, twistthink.com is the right place to look at more information. And again, your email is gordon at twistthink.com and that's one T between the twist and the think, right? Correct. Well done. So, Gordon, again, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for walking through the process that you guys have used to create such a, a, a wide variety of really interesting products and some of the insights there, too, about the need for desirability and usability that you shared. I sure appreciate your insights. Oh, it was my pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Please tell other product managers and innovators about this podcast, and I make that easy. Just go to the show notes for the summary of the discussion with Gordon and you'll find links at the top of the page to share it on your favorite social media sites. Also, from the same page, you can download my Product Mastery Roadmap that shows you how to make your move from Product Manager to Product Master. 
All that and more is at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 135. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.